Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, so we should have told the people listening at home about something that we did not tell them. We appeared, not only did we appear on another podcast as our first time as joint guests on another podcast, but they actually had a live component where their fans could ask questions live in the chat. And we should have told you, our listeners, about this so that you could have showed up and asked us questions live in the chat, which is not something we usually allow you to do. And that would have been fun, but we didn't tell you. So we're going to tell you now, but they're going to go ahead and post a YouTube video of it. And they're going to put it on Apple Podcasts. And we're going to include links to both of those on MarvelRereadClub.com in the show notes for this episode. Well, in, in all fairness, on our Facebook and Instagram feeds, I did link to it once a few days beforehand. And then also like literally right before I went on live. I'm not sure we've said the name of the show. The show is called The Marvel Evolution Show. Three great co-hosts uh, had us on. And so, you know, we were on a screen with our five heads uh, floating there and answering questions about early Marvel comics. And uh, they're sort of mainly an MCU p- podcast. And so we, of course, got sucked into talking about MCU, which we always love to do. And it was a lot of fun. So here we are tonight. We are doing the first four books from March 1965, we had Rob Salkowitz as our guest on our last two episodes, and we all lamented the fact that it was a terrible month for Marvel Comics. I would say this is a better month for Marvel Comics. I'd say yes. we have, there's still some books that are not hitting it as much as they could, but I think that just about every book is better this month than it was last month. And especially the book that was off last month comes back, roaring back to life this month. We're going to, in our next episode, we're going to get to the X-Men, which I thought was one of the all-time great issues. But let's go ahead and handle these four books tonight. Let's go ahead and start with Spider-Man number 22. Spider-Man himself does not appear on the cover. It's, you see his shadow on the wall, which looks like a creepy sort of villainous shadow, and then his spider symbol flashing down on the ground. Spider symbol never really made much sense to me. I didn't really know what it did other than, you know, just being like, oh, Batman's really popular right now. Let's have something like the bat symbol. We see new thrills, new villains, new surprises. Spidey battles the clown and his masters of menace. Now, what we're going to find out in here is that this is just the circus of crime having kicked the ringmaster out and then put the crafty clown in charge. Why they had to change the name of the group at that point doesn't yeah. make much sense to me. They should have just called it the new and improved Circus of Crime. Right. Yeah, you know, it's just, oh, now the clown has taken over the Circus of Crime. But for some reason, they feel they have to come up with another name for this. So um, I don't remember if they actually gave the names of all these characters last time that Ditko handled them. We may have, but I know they were getting the personalities that they would have later. But now they tell us the crafty clown, the great Gambonos the man called Cannonball, Princess Python, and take a look at the Ringmaster. He won't be around very long. So Princess Uh, Python is all new. We hadn't had Princess Python before, so this is her first appearance. We had seen the Great Camponents, but they had never been named. I think we'd seen someone who looked like Cannonball not named. I think there was a clown before, but it wasn't this clown. I think this is the first appearance of this clown. Uh, Yes. So in the credits, they're, you know, generally not very fancy, except that lettered by Artie Simak is much larger than the other two lines for Stanley and Steve Ditko. Then it says, we let Artie do this occasionally. It's cheaper than giving him a raise. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's not like this is all going to end up in lawsuits someday. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, Artie Simak died young. Uh, I don't remember what uh, what the, the causes were. But um, yeah, so we start out with the Circus of Crime is in some sleazy hotel room. Spider-Man has tracked them down and comes in basically to humiliate the ringmaster and let them know, you know, I'm on to you. You know, don't don't try anything. I love Spider-Man being proactive. I always like it in these books where the, you know, hero is going like, I'm going to try to predict crime that might happen and try to proactively intervene and in this case not only just to warn them but also to put a spider tracker on it's logical enough that he would assume that the ringmaster would continue to be in charge and that he would assume he's putting his spider tracker in the right place i thought it was a fun 
twist of the story that he did not realize Ringmaster was about to be fired and he was now tracking the wrong person. I think that this little stunt caused him to be fired. That essentially he lost face in front of the gang when Spider-Man just comes in. He's like, hey, I know you're here and let me take your hat. Here you go. All right. I know you won't try anything now and heads out the window and they're all like, yeah, why are you the leader? (laughs) That's the impression that I got. The rest of the circus of crime beats up the ringmaster and kicks him out. Uh, And then they all agree the clown is going to be their new leader. And I tell you what, this is the creepiest, most evil looking clown this side of Pennywise. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I don't know. He doesn't look like a psychopath, but he just looks like he is bad news. Uh, so. no. We meet Princess Python, we, both on the cover and on the splash page and when she shows up here. And indeed, throughout most of this book, she's called Princess Python. And we don't know why. She doesn't have a python. And like, why, if you got Princess Python, why not put the python on the cover? Why not put it on the splash page? Why not put it in her first appearance? But it, it, they sort of save it up. They sort of, only at the very end of the issue does she reveal like, oh, by the way, you may be wondering why I'm called Princess Python. Booyah, giant python attack. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, I, they were hiding their lantern under a bushel there for a while before they finally, uh, they finally hit us with the python uh, quite, quite a bit later on. Pete is leaving high school. Liz is asking him to walk her home. And he has to beg off with a lame excuse because he's afraid that he'll run into Betty. And Betty is already uh, thinking that he is cheating on her, I guess. I don't know whether you'd call it cheating on her, but, you know. Uh, and he had the right instinct here because then they, he did happen to run into her on the street out there. They seem to be making up, uh, you know, they were fighting earlier and they seem to be getting along famously again here, trying to make another go of it. J. Jonah Jameson is throwing some kind of a charity art gala where, uh, you know, high society is coming and looking at his fancy art collection. Uh, now, I don't think uh, this is for charity in any way, shape, or form. I think he is just selling art. <laughs> he says, he says, I believe it's my civic duty to bring art appreciation to the masses. I love nothing more than helping my fellow man. But then he thinks, and if I can make a nice, healthy profit as well, it doesn't exactly break uh, my heart either. I think he's just selling you're right. art. You're right. So he's just an art collector. On the bottom of page five, there's this one giant close-up painting of a foot with a toe sticking out of the sock. And somebody behind a column is thinking, boy, I wish I could draw feet like that. And it was pointed out to me by someone on the Marvel Comics 1961 to 1986 Facebook group that in issue seven, a kid had written in a letter saying that Steve Ditko couldn't draw feet. And (laughs) (laughs) this seems to be a clapback at this kid. So well, even when we did the Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, Steve Bunch pointed out, "Look at that foot." I would I would have been asked to redraw that when I was working in the Marvel bullpen. But uh, I like Steve Ditko's feet. But uh, yeah, so Steve Ditko, this is the first of I think many stories. This is going to happen more in Amazing Spider-Man. It's going to happen in the Question. It's going to happen in Mister A. It's going to happen in the Creeper. We have scenes set at modern art galleries, and Ditko is fascinated by and generally infuriated by modern art and. <laughs> He has his stand-in characters go like Peter Parker says, if this stuff is art, I'm glad I'm a science major. And, you know, but I think as with Kirby sort of poking fun at the counterculture, I think that there's also a lot of jealousy here on Dicko's part and going like, wow, these guys are, you know, doing are succeeding where I'm failing. They're making a lot of money off their art and I'm not. And it's really frustrating because Dicko knows he's a great artist and he knows he's one of the all-time great artists and and is not getting appreciated for it and is creating all this value that he will never see the money for. And he's seeing these pop artists doing, you know, similar work and making mass amounts of money. And we're getting this sort of percolating, percolating anger here, I think. But also Dicko is having a tremendous amount of fun with it. And it's fun to read these stories. Years ago, I heard uh, Lynn Johnson speak, and she is the creator of the For Better or For Worse uh, daily comic strip. And uh, which, by the way, I actually think is quite underrated just because it's one of the few uh, long form storytelling stories out there that have just actually had characters age in real time through the years over decades. And uh, oh, yeah. it, it, I'm always a huge fan of when people do that. And it was for better or for worse, was a huge achievement and yeah. it's massive story. 
Anyway, I saw her speaking at something and she talked about how, you know, when people ask her, oh, but is what you do really art? And her go-to story was about seeing an installation modern art bit at a uh, Canadian museum where it was this room in the museum you went into and there was essentially a campsite set up in the room. Then there were as though there were footprints around, but instead of footprints, they were butt prints. So <laughs> the, the artist had literally had to sit in a little pan of paint with their bare butt and then go and scoot, you know, in various places and put these butt prints everywhere. And so then Lynn Johnson says, so if that's in a museum, how can you ask me if what I do is art? <laughs> Yeah, fantastic story. Okay, back to what we're doing here. So the Circus of Crime, or I guess now they are calling themselves, what is the Masters of Menace for whatever reason, um, they are going to rob this art gallery, but they are going to have the clown go in and distract everybody. So the clown comes in on a unicycle juggling and he's like, hey, I'm entertainment paid for by J. Jonah Jameson, you know, and he's like, oh, I never hired him, but okay, sure, why not? And meanwhile, while he's creating a distraction, uh, all the art is being stolen out of a back room, but they aren't able to keep it quiet for long. J. Jonah Jameson finds them, and the cannonball actually knocks Jameson unconscious, and uh, he's actually not doing well <laughs> so yeah knocks him comatose yeah he's in a coma the, the whole uh, art show breaks up and uh, spider-man is eventually able to get free and goes out and uses his spider tracker thing to uh find where the ringmaster is so he tracks the ringmaster to a police department and spider-man's like huh okay i guess the police have already gotten to him but it turns out the police were questioning him and he wasn't part of it. So he was able to just leave. Spider-Man then follows along and finds him pacing around in a, uh, you know, wherever it is he's living. Just a weird art thing that I should point out on the bottom of page eight that it looks like Steve Ditko must be doing this on purpose. It looks like a lot of the perspective lines in those three panels on the bottom run from one panel into the next which yeah. is generally a no-no unless you are trying to accomplish something by doing so, you know, unless you're being very deliberate about it. And, you know, I would think that Steve Ditko would be conscious enough about this stuff that he would be, that he was being deliberate about it, but I'm not quite sure what he's trying to get across. Yeah, sometimes artists will do that to show like, you know, somebody moving across the city and they'll have the backgrounds continue while the character moves on in different panels. But I'm not sure this doesn't have that level of intentionality to it. Yeah, yeah. So it just jumped out at me a little bit. Anyway, so Spider-Man goes ahead and uh, hypnotizes the ringmaster with his own hat, gets information out of him about what the circus is actually doing. So Spider-Man goes and finds the hideout for the Masters of Menace. Uh, yeah, and here's where they're actually coming up with their new name for whatever reason. <laughs> and, uh, how about the Carnival Champs or the Big Toppers? No, no, no. The Masters of Menace. That's great. You forgot to do the proper broad Italian accent when the Gambona brothers were talking. What <laughs> are the Big Toppers? It, it's a spicy meatball. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. <laughs> anyway, Spider-Man comes in and we get a nice action sequence, a nice fight sequence between Spider-Man and the newly named Masters of Menace. These guys were able to um, give Spider-Man a run for his money. The clown is going around on his unicycle and like hooking Spider-Man out of the sky with a giant like little Bo Peep hook. Uh, the cannonball really goes ahead and gives him a wallop in the uh, midsection. But then Princess Python comes in and says, you know, tries to essentially use her feminine wiles to get him to surrender. She just kind of she just kind of hugs him. And like she's yeah. hugging his arms and it's like, dude, you have a giant python. Attack him with the giant python. Like, <laughs> why are you hiding your light under a bushel, Princess Python? Why are you not why are you not uh, letting your freak flag fly here? It's coming. Don't worry. Python's coming. <laughs> so anyway, the, the fight goes on. And uh, again, it's a pretty epic one. Finally, Spider-Man is able to dispense with all of them. Um, except for Princess Python. And like when he takes out the cannonball, it looks like he actually probably just crushed the guy's skull. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, that's that's comics for you. People get like punched through brick walls all the time and they're just fine. So um, he comes in to get Princess Python. And he, I guess here's where she's really going for the whole feminine wiles thing. She's like, you know, Spider-Man, you're not too hard to take. Why don't you and I team up? We can make beautiful music together. Like, uh, sorry, ma'am, I happen to be tone deaf. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, Spider-Man, I mean, Pete, for all the idea that he, you know, is kind of juggling two girls and, you know, is a lot, a lot less socially inept than he was when we first met him. He's still a high school kid, you know, yeah. a, a full grown woman in a bodysuit, you know, uh, <laughs> coming on to him. He's like, I, I don't, um, what? I don't know. Uh, please. I'm, yeah. So <laughs> she tries to rip his mask off of him at one point here while she's still like getting all up on him and put her hands on him and stuff. And at that point, he, he's like, okay, I need to take this seriously. I don't want to beat up a woman, but, you know, this is not um, something that I can mess around with. So she somehow shorts out his web shooters with a cattle prod. And she's using the cattle prod to send him into the room with her giant python, <laughs> as Matt's talking about. It's like, oh, here, here's the python. Now, I think in future appearances, the python is not nearly this big, right? Like, can't she, like, sort of wear it like a boa? Or am it's, I making that up? It's pretty big. It's when when it attacks Jan and Hank's wedding, uh, spoiler alert, uh, quite a bit later, um, it's pretty huge. Um, now, I should say I'm terrified of giant snakes, so I sort of skipped this page. So I'm going to take your <laughs> word for it that uh, he has a fight with a giant, giant snake. I uh, Even even in the, you know, very stylized world of Steve Ditko, I don't mess with giant snakes. So uh, I, uh, I skipped I that page. I guess both you and our mom. I remember there was one time when, like, just randomly there happened to be three different things that had come across my Facebook feed with giant snakes in it. And, you know, they were kind of funny or, you know, bizarre or whatever. And I'd shared them. And after, you know, mom at one point messaged me and she's like, um, Steve, some people really, really don't like seeing pictures of snakes, you know, falling out of an airplane, uh, an airplane. Don't, bag don't tell me. Don't tell know. me. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so apparently you and mom. At one point, um, uh, at one point, my there was a new pet shop that opened up in our neighborhood in New York City. And it was, you know, between the subway and our apartment. And uh, my wife and the kids who were very small at the time stopped in and was like, oh, you should check out the new pet store. It's fun to stop in there. And I said, yeah, I don't go to pet stores because they have tanks with snakes in them. And I don't like seeing that. And then she said, oh, well, they did have a big tank for a snake. But don't worry, it doesn't have a snake in it. And I said, I said, the only thing that is scarier to me than a tank, snake tank with a big snake in it is a snake tank without a big snake in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So uh, meanwhile, the ringmaster who is, you know, teed off at his henchman, no longer henching for him, comes by once his hypnotism wears off, waylays the clown, thinks he's now going to make off with the stolen paintings without having to actually have done the work. Uh, But then it turns out, no, the police had just shown up to go ahead and get everybody. So even though he wasn't part of the heist, he is now uh, on the hook legally. Which is funny. Spider-Man is chasing down Princess Python. She's running away from him. Kind of a creepy line here where Spider-Man saying, she's like running in fear towards us. We can see her face looking right at us. He's like, you're lucky. Other girls are sitting home tonight with nothing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's, that comes across weird. But then after that, uh, when she sees that she's running into the police, the police have shown up and she's like, oh no, it's, you know, that's going to happen. Then uh, Spider-Man leaves and he's saying to himself, I'll leave her to the law. They know how to handle big, bad females like that. I'm like, you know, Pete, you're in high school and you're kind of a late bloomer. Don't worry. In a few years, you'll be able to handle big, bad females as well. So (laughs) it'll happen. (laughs) Jameson is better now and has no use for Pete at all. But then Pete's like, hey, I have pictures of the Masters of Menace being arrested. So suddenly Jameson is very, very happy and is, uh, uh, you know, dragging both Betty and Pete off to the office to go ahead and get an extra edition put out with this. 
Um, and then finally, Pete comes home, and it turns out that Aunt May has been waiting up late for him this time. And he, you know, Pete, of course, has no story to tell of why he was out late. But and, that's just uh, the thing is, he does. Like, he's got a perfectly good story to tell. He was putting out an addition to the paper. It would seem to make more sense to have him, like, if he's been out being Spider-Man and finding bad guys. And then she's like, well, what story do you have to tell? And he's like, I, I don't, I can't tell you where I've been. And then they would have a big fight. It doesn't really make sense for them to have this big fight when he's got a perfectly good explanation of where he's been. But you, you have a really good point there. I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, then Aunt May just gives him a big guilt trip about, you know, not letting her know what's going on. And uh, and that's the end of it here. So um, I like this fleshing. Oh, actually, there's one other thing I meant to mention on a previous panel. While Spider-Man was hypnotizing Ringmaster with his own hat, Spider-Man at one point says, one thing's for sure, I'm not Tuesday Weld. Keep your eyes <laughs> on your hat, son. I was like, Tuesday Weld? What? And I, I went and had to look this up. And what does this mean? And yeah, she was apparently a young Hollywood star who was apparently known for going out with a much older Hollywood star. And it was this, uh, you know, even back in the early 60s, this was considered a little bit much for, you know, she was like 18 or something. And he was like in his late 40s. So, yeah, I but I don't know what that reference would be, why that particular name in a comic for kids this particular month, one way or the other, it just it's like the topical references in this in these things can be just really weird. Do you ever listen to Matthew Sweet back in the day? You ever heard yeah. the oh, Matthew yeah. Sweet's album Girlfriend? The absolutely oh, yeah. beautiful woman on the cover of the Matthew Sweet album Girlfriend is Tuesday Well. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. Oh, yeah. Also, at one point, Spider-Man says, suffering spider webs. Uh, hopefully, Stanley <laughs> gives that stuff up pretty soon here, but who knows? All right. So, uh, yeah, I like how they fleshed out the Circus of Crime slash Masters of Menace. Yeah, I, I, I like this one. It's a nice fight scene, a nice long fight scene also with the Masters of Menace. A nice little twist with him going to bust the Ringmaster, but it turns out the Ringmaster is no longer with him. Uh, I like it. Yeah, that was a nice twist. Nice potting, as always, on this book. Well, as almost always, last week's book, when poor Rob was here, was a uh, atypically uh, poorly potted issue. This is back to these usually strong lead to co-potting, depending on who we want to give credit to the potting to. But um, it's a fun story. It's always fun to have Dicko get in his shots at modern art galleries. And yeah, I think Dicko has very much made the Circus of Crime his own at this point. They originally, you know, the Ringmaster was originally introduced by Jack Kirby and the Incredible Hulk, but this is their second appearance in Spider-Man, and he has completely transformed the group, and they are now a uh, Dicko creation for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and that's why when I ran into, you know, when I went back and saw the Circus of Crime again in those first few issues of Hulk, I was like, what? Isn't this a... <laughs> you know, is yeah. this a Ditko group? What the? And yeah, but uh, Ditko, as you said, very much has taken them and make made them his own. So let's go ahead and move on to our second book, which is Fantastic Four 36. So I had remembered that we did not get the Frightful Four until the terrible period in which Vince Coletta was inking the book. And they will have a big epic fight against the Frightful Four that will take up a lot of the Vince Coletta era. But here, I've forgotten, they show up in the Chick Stone era, which is nice that we get a much better inker inking their first appearance. This is sooner or later, someone was bound to come up with an evil group like this, so we thought we'd beat them to it, the attack of the evil FF, the Frightful Four. And we see on the cover that now we have the wizard for the first time in his actual spandex, uh, looking in a pretty cool outfit that Jack Kirby gives him that I think does a lot for the character that was not working over in... The Human Torch. So what we have here is the big graduation ceremony. We have the Wizard and Pastepot Pete who are graduating from the Human Torch's book where they have been recurring villains for quite some time and they are now graduating up to the main book where they will be from now on for the next 60 years of comics up till the present day, presumably. They knew the Wizard wasn't going to be enough. They knew Pastepot Pete wasn't going to be enough. And then they're like, okay, let's go ahead and give them, this is a fun concept. Let's create the evil Fantastic Four, but they're called the Frightful Four. They had a very good idea going, let's bring in Sandman, because Sandman's a great villain and is a formidable villain who can fight big fights against big heroes. But then they said, we need a girl. And you actually see this in the comic. They're like, we need a girl. If we're going to be like the Fantastic Four, we need to have three dudes and a girl. And so then they bring in Medusa. So we have here on the cover... Medusa, or Madame Medusa, as she's called here, dangling by her hair. And right away, this character for me does not work. Where is she dangling from? 
what is her hair tied to? Is there just a massive flagpole sticking from the top you know of... Oh, come on. We, we see in the issue, there they have a floating airship that's using uh, the wizard's anti-grav uh, technology that shows up. She's dangling from that. I guess. It just looks weird. I have So I will just say, I like the Inhumans. When the Inhumans show up, I think they add a lot to this book, but I have never liked Medusa. And I just find the hair to be silly. I find the idea of a, she starts off as a villain, then she becomes a hero, sort of, without ever a really good explanation of why she was a villain. And the hair, just a, a woman with a lot of hair who, that she can whip around and control. This is just not an effective villain strategy. This is, I'm just never, or hero strategy. I don't like her as a villain. I don't like her as a hero. I don't like Medusa. But here we get her. And she, certainly the only thing I like about her is she brings in a certain maniacal, bizarre energy to the book. As, as, and that's what the Inhumans will always be good for. And that she is just like, okay, Kirby is going crazy here and he is getting weird. We do get an early glimpse of how weird the Inhumans will be and the sort of crazy energy they will bring to this book. All right, let's go ahead and jump into this issue. It was unclear last issue whether Reed had actually proposed the zoo. He didn't use a ring. He didn't get down on one knee, but apparently he did. And now the whole press corps has found out about it. So this is Lee Kirby Stone, a fantastic Stone and King on Kirby in this issue. We've only got one more issue with Stone next issue, which is going to be a great issue and a great farewell to the book by Stone. And then we've got about five terrible Coletta issues, plus, unfortunately, the big annual and then finally, we're going to get Joe Sinan on the book. But this is our penultimate Chick Stone issue. And so then we cut to the docks where and this keeps happening. The trapster knows he is going to meet Sandman. And suddenly, and he's like, where's the Sandman? He's not here. Hey, what's going on? Where did all the sand come from? Like, dude. <laughs> well, and, and, and but he's not the trapster yet. He's still Paste Pot Pete. Yes, I had remembered that him becoming the trapster coincided with him uh, graduating up to the big book and it, and joining the Frightful Four. But no, he is still called Pacepot Pete, even though he has his better costume here, or not, not better costume, his more serious costume, which is so much lamer than his hilarious costume. Well, it, it is, well, yes, but it is better, much better rendered here by Kirby than it was by uh, by Dick Ayers. Uh, yes. You know, um, as I said, when he got this costume in the other book, he just looked like he had these skinny little chicken legs and this big like over heavy yeah anyway one way or the other um kirby at least makes the best of what the design is and then meanwhile so the sandman has decided that even though he always wears a green shirt with horizontal black stripes because he's going to be joining this group that apparently is going to have a purple theme he goes ahead and gets a purple shirt with horizontal stripes which is you know that's just nice of him you know it's, it's nice, <laughs> it is. nice and yeah. you know <laughs> Team spirit. Uh, but so then the wizard comes. We get some atypically awkward storytelling from Kirby where he's got a flashback where, you know, they're talking and then they have a flashback to how they all got together. The Sandman and Trapster, Sandman and Pacebot Pete, sorry, escaped from prison together and then stole a plane. And then while they're flying the plane, they're like, hey, there's the wizard still flying around in the outer atmosphere like he was the last time he appeared in uh, Human Torch. And uh, they're like, oh, good. Uh, apparently he's been flying around for like months now because <laughs> Baseball <laughs> Pete has had time to like do a prison term. But uh, then they find the wizard flopping around and then they go like, we should form our own evil Fantastic Four, but we need a woman. Hmm. Then we come back to the present day just for two panels. And then we go back to another flashback where he's like, now that we're back in the present day, now I'll give you a, another flashback to when I found a woman. And they go to an <laughs> island in the Mediterranean Sea where Medusa has been living in a cave. So I guess eventually they explain this, that when the Inhumans came into our world, that the their first introduction to air pollution made them go a little crazy. And so Medusa ended up living in a cave and attacking any policeman that tried to arrest her. But I, uh, I have no idea how they go back and explain this. I mean, when, when the Inhumans first show up, they make no attempt at explaining this this discrepancy. Uh, I guess they probably do eventually. So then they go like, OK, so we're going to get the whole group together. It's going to be awesome. We then cut to the actual engagement party where they've invited all the superheroes, including Rick Jones, who continues to be leading this bizarre bi-coastal life. But the X-Men are there. Bizarrely, the X-Men, Iceman thinks it's sure tough pretending that we X-Men don't know the prof. Because Professor Xavier is there and the X-Men is there, but they keep up this charade where they pretend they don't know each other. It's just bizarre. It's one one thing if, you know, the Fantastic Four are inviting all the superheroes here. So then why are they inviting Professor X? 
Yes. I mean, he's yes. not part of the X-Men. He just runs this school. You know? Everybody else here is a superhero or a superhero groupie. What's up with this? Yeah, It is bizarre. We see the Beast manipulating Reed Richards' hi-fi set with his feet. Which like, is fun. Get, your, get your dirty, nasty feet off the hi-fi. <laughs> Do you know how much that thing costs? But uh, so then Spider-Man shows up just long enough to stick his hand in the window and steal a piece of cake with some webbing because he feels like he's not really welcome. So then all the heroes leave and the Frightful Four attack and they, yes, we see her go down, you know, go down the side of the building and they take out the thing pretty quickly with some paste. And then Sue, very competent. You know, Sue figures out what's going on, throws up her force field, contacts the rest of the team, or contacts Reed at least. They still get into a huge fight, and Sue doesn't realize that there is a woman on the team, doesn't realize there's anyone behind her. She gets grabbed by the hair, and Wizard knocks her out with some gas. They've got three members of the team knocked out at this point. At this point, Alicia is there, and I'm glad when Alicia is competent and useful and helps, but I'm not really sure I buy that Alicia could go like, oh, something terrible is happening there. I know it. If only I could help. They've risked their lives so many times to aid me. Surely I can do no less for them. And then she sneaks into the room and finds Sue on the floor. I'm like, I'm not sure how a blind woman could find someone who is unconscious on the floor, not knowing that they're there. But anyway, she's, you know, she's a capable person. She does it. So then she then steals the FF signal flare, sends it up into the sky. We see Johnny working on a hot rod. And then he sees the signal flare comes, uh, comes back over. The wizard has put anti-gravity discs on the three Fantastic Four, and he's just going to float them up into space. But then Human Torch attacks. Human Torch takes Wizard hostage, takes the wizard's flying ship, flies up to go try to get Fantastic Four. We have a really nice sequence where everybody wakes up in the upper atmosphere, and Reed Richards has to wrap them all up in a ball in the outer atmosphere to try to save all their lives. And uh, it's kind of cool looking. Of course, would later be done even cooler in John Burns' run on the Fantastic Four, where they have a harrowing issue-long sequence of them being in the outer atmosphere, being kept alive by Reed, and all of them using their powers together to return to Earth. So then they continue to fight. The fight eventually crashes back onto Earth. It keeps going, and then it just kind of ends. It says, Reed, Sue, hit the dirt. The wizard broke loose. He and Salmon are blowing up the ship. Take cover before a move can be made. There's a big explosion. Long, torturous minutes later, the Gallant force them recover, only to find Johnny. Are the others all right? Yes, Reed, but the Frightful Four, they've all disappeared. They're sort of confused as to why the Frightful Four decided to cut out, since they must have fled in a panic, not knowing that the blast knocked us out. They didn't even try to take our pogo plane. Lucky for us. So so then it says at the end, of course the FF will meet their evil counterparts again, but it won't be in our next dish, because our next super thriller is a tale that's literally out of this world. That is, in fact, one of my favorite issues of Fantastic Four, where they go to, they take the fight to the squirrels for the first time next issue, but... For now, we have an inconclusive battle with the Frightful Four that will resume very quickly. They're going to, unfortunately, check, next issue is Chick Stone's last issue in the book. And then Vince Coletta is going to bring his terrible inking to a long epic where they fight the Frightful Four shortly. But we still have one more glorious stone issue left in the next wonderful scroll issue. But I think this is a fine issue of the Fantastic Four. I think that the Frightful Four is the best possible use of the Wizard and Pacebot Pete, and great to have the Sandman added to that group. Great to have, the, like I said, the Medusa is crazy and weird, which I like, but also inane. In a, the the hair powers are inherently inane in a way that I don't like. You know, may, maybe some, maybe at some point we should do some kind of like subscriber content that's us doing an Inhumans Hate Watch podcast. <laughs> 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 of the of the television show you're talking about the uh, yes the, yes uh, exactly um, which so, I know is a- so some uh, <laughs> yeah my, my wife and I had a hate watch of that one and it was just like <laughs> okay so uh, a few observations about this for me uh, one when we have the flashback to Pacebot Pete and Sandman breaking out of jail together um, Stanley does this time have at least a little bit of a uh, feeling of guilt about how silly this is he's saying. Good thing I had a paste gun and costume stashed away out here because, you know, (laughs) they're escaping in full regalia. Let's see. You already talked about the hijacking the Air Force plane there, which just it's like, hey, good thing you can fly this thing. Yes. Yeah, no, it's funny. They're like, yeah, we're stealing an Air Force plane. And it's like uh, neither of these characters have a pilot background, do they? And it's like, oh, 
good thing that you have a pilot background we've never discussed before. You're apparently an Air Force dropout. And when we uh, first see Medusa, uh, I just love this first appearance. She's running out of the cave, attacking them. And she says, fools, it is I, Madame Medusa, who has trapped you. Of what use are your clumsy guns and fists against my unconquerable hair? <laughs> that is that is prime grade A uh, Stanley. Right there. Yes. Um, I found it a little bit odd that uh, the X-Men would be easier to track down than Spider-Man to invite to the uh, <laughs> to invite to the party. But, um, you know, OK, sure. Why not? Um, I think it's mainly just that Ditko's heroes are getting snubbed here. When Medusa's hair comes in the window uh, to try and, and uh, mess with Ben Grimm, that is just a really, really weird looking drawing of Ben Grimm's face. I cannot make out what is yeah. supposed to be going on with the whole bottom half of his face there. Yep, it's pretty weird. Yeah, it's super weird. Also, when uh, Medusa is sneaking up behind Sue, as you were pointing out, this is, you know, you were often talking about how, you know, the eyes don't look like they're pointing at the same thing. Uh, that is definitely one of those cases there <laughs> where Sue is just like, oh, I'm all cross-eyed and weird. And then, yeah, I, I love how resourceful, how when Sue takes, like, steals Pace Pot Pete's gun while he's knocked out and uses the gun to glue up Medusa's hair while invisible. Um, it's just a really, you know, and also the way that she's drawn, just sort of her pose and everything, she really is coming across like, you know, okay, here's a superhero doing superhero stuff. Always nice when we get to see Sue really bringing it to the bad guys just as much as the male ones. And that panel right below it where the uh, explosion happens, just a super dynamic looking panel. It just looks really, really fantastic. Yeah, it looks great. So anyway, those are my general thoughts about this issue. So we're now going to move on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. And I really like this one because we're introduced to the Absorbing Man. Uh, when it comes to sort of earthbound, regular sort of superpowered earthbound characters fighting Thor, generally, you know, we tend to not be big fans of that. But I love the absorbing. Man. So do I. I also and I and I think that he is kind of a worthy opponent for Thor, you know, and, and especially the fact that he was created by Loki, that Loki was right. just like, OK, well, I can't do anything to Thor right now. So let me just find some Earth criminal who I can give superpowers to and let him do the work for me. Uh, and he found this really great, despicable guy <laughs> to do this with. So uh, the splash page in here is fantastic. There is some generic villain who's driving like a really fantastic looking, souped up, drag racing, muscle car frame motorcycle kind of in a caption they call it a souped up bucket racing car so i know i'm go. not sure what a bucket racing car is but i guess that's what this is um so uh it's written at white heat by stan lee drawn with purple passion by jack kirby inked with golden serenity by chick stone Lettered on a Blue Monday by Sam Rosen. Thor is fighting this bad guy here. Basically makes quick work of him. Loki then is going to try from a distance. Right, he's he's going and sending something through a dimensional thing that's supposed to weaken Thor. Uh, and it just, it doesn't work. Thor is able to get by that and dispense with this generic villain. Uh, oh, but the um, the little chemical that he's sending through this dimensional uh, portal or whatever um, is described here on page three. It says, slowly, cautiously, the merciless god of evil pours a strange potion into a subautronic space distorter. So uh, that that's a new one. Uh, that's one that I have not heard from Stan Lee before. Subautronic. Um, did not so, did not take off. Did not become the new transistors. Sub. Uh, this may be the only time we ever hear something described as subautronic. Yes, I, I I believe so. Loki is enraged that he wasn't able to uh, get this done. So then he has another plan. He goes ahead and finds a criminal that he can uh, superpower and send him against Thor. So he's able to drop a magic potion or magic pill once again 
through a dimensional, you know, warp or something like that into the prison cup of Crusher Creel, who just has a fantastic look to him. You know, he just he really does. You know, yeah. there's so many Marvel characters who just have generic interchangeable faces and certainly generic interchangeable head shapes. Crusher Creel has a extremely unique face that is always on model. Every artist loves drawing him and draws him according to Kirby's model. And his head shape is so interesting and strange and unique and is always on model. And I love how he he gets the superpowered pill in his drink. He drinks it and he's not a very smart guy, but he instantly figures out what's going on. He's like, was that a superpowered pill in this thing? I just drank all that that I have observing man powers right now. Let me try. And then he, uh, I just love the look on his face when he, right after he drinks it, though, just the three panel sequence of him drinking it, looking suspiciously at his drink and then suddenly roaring with rage or roaring with delight, I guess, that now he has superpowers is a gorgeous sequence and then of course <laughs> when he becomes metal he becomes riveted metal of course show that he's metal yes uh and the way that the absorbing man's powers work is always a little bit a little bit wishy-washy in terms oh, of yeah. you know how how exactly things work here and so in this issue it's like he can absorb Thor's powers by being near him, which I'm like, I don't think that keeps up. No. But, you know, there, there's always questions about like, well, couldn't he always turn into steel because he always has this ball and chain with him and he could always touch that one way or the other. We see that Dr. Blake is fixing up an injury on a reporter, injured himself, presumably while he was in uh, search of a story. He doesn't really tell Don how he did it. He just says, I slipped on a banana peel or running for a train. So presumably that is not what actually happened. Um, mm-hmm. Or I presumed, I don't know. And we will see him again shortly. Jane and Don are being quite romantically involved in this one. Once again, they, they have tended to go back and forth on that. But I think from this point on, they pretty much decided that both of them are in love with the other one. Um, yeah. And he says, very uh, well, darling. But if I ever fall in love with the doctor again, I'll run for the hills. So, yes, they yes. are. These two are in love. He then goes and turns into Thor. Actually, why does he think he has to get out of here? Oh, that's right. Because when he was talking to the reporter, the reporter was saying that he was chasing after this story about this guy who got these superpowers. He's running off to the hills. Don Blake turns himself back into Thor. Uh, We have some fantastic, just majestic pictures of Thor flying up into the sky above this above the skyline and then out racing a uh, diesel train through the countryside and just some fantastic stuff. We've got some more of the sort of somewhat weird powers that Mjolnir can have. Uh, It can sort of vibrate uh, when it is near evil or something like that. But, you know. Okay, I, I think that might not be, that might stick with things over time. Yeah, they use that a lot. So, okay, here's the thing. On page eight, panel number two, when I saw this, I was like, wait a minute, this looks familiar. And I went and pulled up the cover of the first issue that either you or I met the Absorbing Man, the uh, the issue of Hulk. It has that really creepy sequence where Banner is shoved into a subterranean cavern and almost crushed yeah but on the cover the cover of that issue was drawn by frank miller i think that he might have been doing an homage to panel two page eight yeah he totally is yeah okay good not just me then (laughs) yeah so uh so what we have on panel two page eight is uh thor is you know trying to follow his hammer and he's like i don't know man it's getting really buzzy uh, and the absorbing man is right behind him, having absorbed some uh, stone. So he is hard like stone. But then as he gets close to Thor, he's no longer colored like stone. And presumably that's because he says that he can absorb Thor's power. So, you know, it's more powerful to him for him to look like a human being and have Thor's power than to have a stone body. So meanwhile, this reporter, who seems a little bit iffy, like I'm not quite sure whether he's a bad news or not. It's it's really unclear, but he's actually got some dynamite with him. <laughs> yes. Which is a, a poor choice. You know, that's not... <laughs> 
So he's trying to go ahead and break up the fight and get Crusher Creole to surrender. Says, I found him at last. Lucky I brought some of these dynamite sticks with me in case I needed them, because you never know when you're going to need them. What a scoop this will be for old Hobbs. Drop that ball and chain, Creole. Surrender, or I'll throw this TNT. I'm not sure this is something reporters usually do, and I'm not sure it's something that human beings usually do. I'm not sure this is a general good problem-solving strategy as a general rule, but as a reporter especially. I think especially reporters shouldn't be doing this. You know, I, I I don't think it's your place to tell an American which arms they have a right to bear. If they That's want right. to go ahead and run around with sticks of dynamite for self-defense, I don't think you have any place to tell them different. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the the this ill-begotten plan uh, is, you know, doesn't work out well. In the end, Crusher Creel escapes and uh, Thor protects the reporter from uh, being killed by the dynamite explosion because, you know, he probably should have been killed by the dynamite explosion. (laughs) Thor then tracks frightened people towards uh, tracking down where Crusher Creel has gotten to. He's thinking about all the crazy stuff he's going to be able to do with these powers, breaking open banks with his bare hands and uh, destroy and you know taking over small countries, you know knocking knocking apart their tank, taking over the country, and he's just fantasizing about all this. And then he's driving the stolen car, and then he sees Thor flying after him in the back window, and so uh, he just he and literally just destroys the car around him to go ahead and start fighting Thor in a fantastic panel. <laughs> yes. Like, wait, he's coming up behind me! Bam! I'm just gonna get rid of this car. which uh yeah just so much fun whenever you see the absorbing man fantastic battle scenes here with thor and absorbing man really going at it uh full force but then fog comes in from seemingly out of nowhere and then thor thinks i seem to feel the rainbow bridge materializing beneath my feet and apparently this fog was part of balder coming and you know thor is pissed he's like dude, I'm having, you know, I'm having battle. What are you doing taking me out of the battle and making it look like I ran away? And Baldur's like, um, Jane's in trouble. He's like, oh, okay, let's get on a horse and ride. We gotta go take care of this. Yeah, this is a fun, fun story. I always love the Absorbing Man. Have from the, within the first few months that we were collecting comic books. You know, despite the fact that he is a mortal and not like a troll or a frost giant or whatever, um, I think that he actually is a worthy um, opponent to Thor. Yeah, he is. And he's just got a great look. He's got great powers. He's got great personality. Don't worry, Crusher Creole. You know, you may not be the most handsome guy, but you've got a great personality. He's got a great <laughs> uh, great character, great characterization. And this is a fun story. So as with Fantastic Four, where next issue will be our final Chickstone issue. But it'll be so much more tragic on Thor because once Goda comes on Thor, he never leaves. After five issues, they will realize why do we have Coda inking Kirby on Fantastic Four? Let's get a much better anchor, but they never, co- or not for many more years, do they come to that same realization on Thor. But we still have, this is a beautifully inked issue by Chickstone. This is a great issue. I was going to point out before that when he imagines himself becoming a dictator, that's very much like 1961, 1962 Marvel, that oh, yeah. he used to do that a lot. He would have the villain suddenly imagining himself as a dictator and what he'll do when he takes over the world. He hasn't done that in quite some time. We get that little throwback here. But yes, this is a wonderful story. Were there any other things that I had notes on that I didn't get to in there? Oh, it's just that, that one picture of the sort of abstract close-up of Loki's face when his attempt to weaken Thor while he was fighting just that Penny Annie bad guy just is fantastic Kirby work. It's just, you know, when he says, I failed, powerful as I was, my potion had no effect upon Thor. I should have known only Odin can strip Thor's power from him. Even I, the master of evil, the lord of sorcery, cannot do it. Kind of looks like John Buscema. John Buscema loved panels like this. I guess he was probably borrowing them from Kirby. Probably so. But yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, for the majority of my comics reading life, I have been a bigger fan of John Buscema than I was of uh, Jack Kirby. So uh, that might be one of the reasons why that panel really jumped out at me as uh, as quite remarkably good. Okay, we then move on to Tales of Asgard. Uh, up top, it says, special note, we interrupt our, quote, biographies in depth series of the life of Loki to present this special tale based on a newly translated version of one of the world's most ancient legends. We think you will recognize it. 
Um, I don't, I think that's just being made up. I don't know if there was some kind of new translation that, you know, of some Norse myth that this came from. I'm thinking that's just something Lee made up. But essentially, to, to jump to the point of things, this uh, goddess Iduna is taking the golden apples of immortality to Odin so that he can dispense the you know godhood to people who are worthy if they aren't already uh, as guardians. And so apparently she has to bring this to him every year. Fenrir, the wolf god, uh, sees this and uh, says, oh, those apples must be mine disguises himself as a traveler, or I guess at least a man along the road. Maybe he's only disguising himself as a highwayman. But one way or the other, you know, comes up and is literally twirling his mustache as as he approaches. And, you know, you can see where this is going as as things are happening here. Iduna says, what strange hands you have. So grasping, so brutal. And what an odd voice you have, like the guttural snarl of a wild beast. So, you know, you can really see here that, you know, it's like, oh, what big teeth you have, Grandma. (laughs) Um, So uh, this is being presented, essentially, as the source of the Little Red Riding Hood myth. Uh, And, you know, eventually, wasn't there something about a hunter coming and rescuing her from the stomach of the the wolf or something like that? In some versions, yeah. Yeah, so then there's a warrior who comes and defeats Fenrir and lets her move on with her apples. Um, And there is a fantastic panel, uh, even with uh, Coletta's inks, uh, the second to last panel of the story with Fenrir banished to Varnenheim. Varnenheim? Varnenheim. The seat of the land of the lost. And that's just a wonderful looking panel there. Um, It is. Yeah, we get Vanaheim in these books, but this is the, I think the first we've heard of Varenheim, which is different from Vanaheim, presumably. But uh, yeah, I like this story a lot. I think it's it's fun to. I think this is going back to sort of the original tales of Asgard's we were getting of just telling little tales from folklore, and I think it's fun for them to go like, "Hey, we found a Norse myth that's similar to Little Red Running Hood," and who knows if they're telling the truth or if they just made this up. But it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's time to move on to is Strange Tales next? I think Strange Tales is next. We get to a huge issue in the history of Marvel Comics. We get to Strange Tales number 130. They know they've got something special here. For once, they realize that a feat of Doctor Strange, a tale so different, so unexpected, we just had to give it the feature cover spot this issue. So we, for once, I think maybe for the first time, we have Doctor Strange taking up most of the cover as he fights Baron Mordo on the cover. Always interesting to get Kirby Doctor Strange, Kirby Mordo. I think it's the first time we've seen Kirby Mordo in the smaller inset panel. It says, how offbeat do you get? Don't dare miss the human torch and the ever-loving void thing when they meet the Beatles. We've already seen the thing in a Beatles wig before, but here we see the thing in a Beatles wig and the human torch with his flaming head in a Beatles wig. I guess it's a asbestos Beatles wig. Of course it is. What makes this issue so hugely important in the history of Marvel Comics is the Doctor Strange story. But first, let's go ahead and quickly dispense with the Human Torch story, although it yeah, is... I thought you were saying that what made it so historic is the fact that we actually had a guest appearance by the Beatles. That is that is big, but <laughs> no, it is the Doctor Strange story that is so important. First, we have the Human Torch and the Ever-11 thing, Meet the Beatles, story by Swing and Stan Lee, art by Bouncing Bob Powell. We've had Bob Powell before, right? No, I don't think so. I think this is his first appearance in the superhero books. Okay, so another, another person who... I, I'm sorry, I failed to look up Bob Powell. I know nothing. He's a, he's Golden Age, right? He's a Golden Age guy, I, I assume. I think so. And uh, Inken by Shucklin Chickstone. So then we, the and the Bob Powell art is pretty good. I think yeah, it's... Uh, I like it. And Chickstone always does a good job. Inking. We have, of course, Johnny and Ben are trying to kill each other. Reed and Sue are nonplussed about this. They are chasing each other around. They are throwing equipment at each other. Meanwhile, their girlfriends, Alicia and Dory, are super into the Beatles, of course. And then we get a call order where poor Bob Powell, who I know nothing about, has the order of having to actually do some celebrity caricaturing here and draws all four Beatles. Let me interrupt here. I just looked up Bob Powell's uh, Wikipedia page. It says, was an American comic book artist known for his work during the 1930s to 1940s golden age of comic books, including the features Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and Mr. Mystic. He received a belated credit in 1999 for co-writing the debut of the popular feature Blackhawk. 
Powell also did the pencil art for the bubblegum trading card series Mars Attacks. Oh wow! Well, that's huge. That's a that's that's fantastic art. Uh, I, I've never seen the uh, Mars Attacks trading cards. I mean, this oh, is them. this is back in the '60s. This isn't from yeah from the movie. Okay, wow. There, there's so a anyway, reason yeah, that's who Bob Powell is. Yeah, there's a reason why that's a legendary series that uh you know you had a whole generation that was absolutely scarred by the mars attack series and it's uh it's really gorgeous so uh yes well bob powell is a good artist and he does a great job on the beatles we have four beatles come in and you can tell which one's which (laughs) you know and it's hard because they're all four white dudes wearing the same suit with the same haircut same hair color but you can tell which one's which and they come in and the girls are of course very excited to meet the beatles they call up the boys you know it's interesting so we had Around the same time this issue came out, we had, I guess the year before, James Bond in Goldfinger talk about like, oh, you know, serving that champagne with that thing is like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs on. And uh, that's my terrible, (laughs) terrible Sean Connery invitation. And, you know, you had obviously James Bond on the wrong side of history talking about how terrible the Beatles were. But here you've got Stanley and Bob Powell on the right side of history and uh, Johnny and then have the differences, but they both know how awesome the Beatles are. And they're like, hell yeah, we'll come down and see the Beatles with their girlfriends. And so they go in there and they sneak in the back window and they get to meet the Beatles, which of course was the title of the Beatles album at the time. And they are all crammed in. They get autographs from them. But then three crooks in Beatles wigs steal the money from the gate. And as happens so often, especially in the Human Torch feature, they end up in an amusement park. They peel off in a car. The Johnny melts their tires while they're outside an amusement park. They end up chasing each other over, of course, on uh, all the various rides at the amusement park, which creates some fun battling. It turns out they eventually get turned upside down in a roller coaster, at which point their Beatles wigs come off and they're all bald, which tells you that they're evil right there. <laughs> they eventually defeat the bad guys, leave them tied up, come back to the concert, but they've arrived just a bit too late. The Beatles have just finished their concert and everybody's saying, wow, what a show. And they all go running off. And Johnny and Ben are disappointed. They did not hold up the show for the two people who were trying to save all the money from the gate. Like I said, the right side of history, we've got an acknowledgement that the Beatles are pretty great from everybody involved in this issue. And I think this is a fun issue. I think this is a fun little story. Great to see the Beatles. Bob Pell does a great job drawing them. Chick Stone does a great job making all together a fun little story, a shockingly good Human Torch thing story. Yes, well above average for these Human Torch Strange Tales stories. Uh, this is probably one of the best ones we're going to get. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with what Bob Powell is doing here. So then we get to the back half of the book where we have the beginning of Marvel Comics' first true epic. We have, um, so I grew up reading comics in the 80s, didn't get much chance to read comics from the 60s at first, but... One of, you know, and so then Marvel started releasing these special editions where they would reprint their best comics on fancy paper, multiple issues per issue. And they did very little Kirby work, which we talked about. The only Kirby book they did in that format was Fantastic Four Annual Number One. But, you know, we talked about just last week about how I was reading Dicko's work in the 80s and was not possed by it. And then they, I read some, my art teacher had just little uh, pocket paperback reprints of the early Spider-Man. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Well, then the other thing that happened around the same time is I read the special edition reprint of this storyline, this massive 12-issue epic storyline that begins in this issue, beginning now, and they know what they're doing. They say, beginning now, two exclamation points, the start of the greatest black magic spectacular ever presented, the defeat of Doctor Strange. They have planned this out. They know they are about to do a 12-issue epic. Stanley is going to script the entire thing. He's not going to have anybody else scripted. Steve Dicko is going to ink the entire thing. He's not going to have anyone else ink it. They are committed to the bit. So here we get to these issues that I did read growing up because they were reprinted in this thing. We begin with Baron Mordo talking to someone behind a magical barrier who is agreeing to give him more power and says, all right, go kill them. Meanwhile, we see Doctor Strange practicing his powers with the Ancient One in Tibet, and suddenly Mordo shows up with two goons and tries to kill them. And it is obviously a very harrowing fight right from the beginning. Wonderful panels on the top of page three of Doctor Strange having his shields shattered by Mordo's suddenly greatly increased powers and really freaking out about this and really realizing how much trouble he's in. He's literally sweating. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. And uh, so then slips out through a little trapdoor, little trapdoor escape hatch, and Dicko just does a great job with the sort of 
this bizarre caverny, chasmy area that the Ancient One has his cave in. Mordo sends his ectoplasmic form out to chase after them, but they manage to hide and get away. We then see the person who Mordo was talking to. He was talking to Dormammu. We first saw Dormammu, who had his own little two-issue epic a couple of issues ago, where Doctor Strange came to his dark dimension and then forced a promise out of him never to invade our dimension, which Dormammu is keeping, but instead Dormammu is powering Baron Mordo to kill Doctor Strange to get out of the deal without, but he's trying to stick to the deal because he's not leaving his own dark dimension. And so then, now we know where Baron Mordo gets his super strength from. He, Doctor Strange, snatches the Ancient One in another cave where another disciple of the Ancient One lives and works, and Doctor Strange goes off holding a little dummy wrapped up in the blanket, which tricks Baron Mordo's ectoplasmic goons who are following him. We then get what really makes this sequence so amazing, which is the combination of Dicko doing the other dimensional. We just saw Dormammu's dark dimension, which is gorgeous. And then we get Dicko's cities. And I've always felt like one of the most underrated things about Dicko, and this is obviously true in Spider-Man, is Dicko's cities, but also in Doctor Strange. Whenever Doctor Strange goes to a city, Dicko just kills it. So then we get just an amazing panel on page seven. Dicko is doing you know, his standard nine panel layout, or in this case, an eight panel layout. But he just has one panel to establish at that very moment in the mysterious city of Hong Kong. And that third panel of page seven, where we see Dr. Strange walking through the city of Hong Kong could not be more gorgeous. This whole issue reminds me a lot of Hurricane. This whole issue reminds me a lot of Tintin comics. And I, I, when, when you were saying that you were describing this panel and I was looking at it more closely than I had when I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, it looks like Hergé. <laughs> it looks like particularly what which which book was it where he really sort of I think it was, yeah it was one where it was an Asian where he yeah, first met Lotus. His, huh Blue Lotus Blue Lotus yeah. Yeah. looks like the the big like op, like the splash page near the beginning of Blue Lotus you're right even though it's it like this little one ninth of a page panel um it really does feel that way it does so then we get to another thing I really love about this book and really fell in love with when I was reading these special editions is that we have Doctor Strange on the run and he's like I'm gonna have to go undercover I had to put on a suit but I'm gonna wrap up my cloakable invitation to fit inside the suit as I wear my little uh it's is this a dicky is he wearing a dicky or is this just like an ascot? I would call it a cravat. A cravat? Okay. He puts on a suit and a hat and a little yellow cravat, but he's got his suit folded up in his uniform. So then when one of Mordo's, well, one of Mordo's disciples finds him, but says, I'm not going to tell Mordo I found you because I'm going to defeat you first. And he's like, oh, good. You know, good is very greed. will give me the breathing time I need. He has not yet contacted my arch foe. And so then what I really just love about Doctor Strange, as written by Lee, as written as, you know, co-written by Lee and Dicko, as written later by Roger Stern, as written by all of his greatest writers, um, is him using his powers in just very tactile street level ways. And so then he's like, okay, I can't use my powers very much here. I'm just going to create illusions to myself and have the goons chase after illusions to myself. The big guy can't do it, but then everyone's going to attack me. And then because I have my cloak levitation stuffed up in my uniform, I can levitate myself up above them which is something we've never seen him do before. And then he zonks him, he puts a whammy on him, but too late, the guy is finally able to contact Mordo and tell Mordo where he is. And so we get just a gorgeous panel of Doctor Strange fleeing off into the city. And this very much does not wrap up. This is the beginning of Marvel's first and one of their, how many years later will it be before they officially do a 12-issue epic? Like what is, <laughs> like Secret Wars? Is that their next 12-issue epic after this? <laughs> Like I, I don't know. Well, I, yeah, I guess it would depend on what you mean by that. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously the Dark Phoenix epic was essentially like a big twelve issue epic, but it was broken down into you know he wasn't fighting one. You know, the X Men never fought just one villain for twelve issues in a row, even in the Dark Phoenix saga. An epic of this ambition is really, I'm going to say, Marvel something Marvel did not attempt again until Secret Wars in 1983. This is, and we're going to be so for the next. 12 issues of this book, next 24 episodes of this podcast, we are just going to be geeking out over this 12-issue epic. So uh, one, so on the final page, the second panel on this, on the final page, Strange is just punching a guy and just saying, sometimes the simplest attack is the most effective. This is not the last time we're going to see him just using sheer brute force against people in this 12-issue epic. 
And it sort of brings to mind, it's like, oh, okay. So if you're thinking of this as like an Eastern mystical discipline, it might be like yoga or like various other things where there's going to be a physical component to the discipline that you've got. That sort of brings some of that stuff up about like, okay, so is this, is this sort of, could you even think of his sorcery as being like a particular mystical type of martial art? We get some of that stuff in here and it kind of expands my view of what he is and what he does. And yeah, you're and the cityscapes in here, as you said, are just fantastic. You know, there's a question of, you know, there's, there's always, and you know, we probably ought to acknowledge that yeah, it's like, you know, the mysterious city of Hong Kong. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the and the the thugs coming at him who are wearing the coolie hats and stuff like that, which, you know, I don't know how much that would be. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but but, uh, but no, it's fantastic, though. It really is. It really is. Yeah, I, I guess the Avengers Defenders War is a big, it's not 12 issues, but it's long. The Avengers Defenders War is 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 one of one of Marvel's biggest epics. So that's that's maybe the next huge intentional beginning, middle, end epic they do, but not quite as long as this one. And really this one is more than 12 issues because it does not, they changed the version that was in the special edition to make it end more definitively than it did. It really, that 12th issue ends on a cliffhanger and then leads into essentially another five issues before Steve Dicko ends his whole Marvel existence uh, with a huge conclusion to his Doctor Strange story. But we'll be getting into all that soon enough. So, Steve, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. These have been four good issues. We will keep recording tonight, but that will be our next episode. Thanks, America. We will talk to you next week. And uh, I will speak to the rest of the world and say thank you as well. (laughs) uh, Hope that you stick around for the next episode. Okay, bye guys. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.